Let's bow together and we'll get, we'll get going. Father, it's good to be in this place today with uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. We enjoyed a very, very delicious meal and we thank you for it and thank you for the gracious, sweet people who prepared it for us. We pray uh, that today you will speak to our hearts as we continue our study in Genesis. Uh, I pray that when we leave, we'll feel as if we've learned something new, uh, something that will help us, encourage us, uh, something that will remind us of the grace and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, thank you for all who've come. Bless each one and their families. And now instruct us as we open our hearts to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, as we look at, at uh, chapter 6, it, it is uh, you see that the title I've given is Sin, Yet There Is Grace. So what I'd like to do is read the first eight verses, and uh, then we'll talk about those verses a bit, and then move on to the latter part of the chapter. So chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. And it says, when man or humans began to increase in number on the earth, daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Now, before we go on, if you if you're just reading verses one and two, you should I think get a sense even if you don't remember all the context and everything's going on, there should have been just a sense out of verses one and two something's not right here. Something's not right here, and so we we confirm that then in verse three when the Lord has a response to what is going on. Then verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said... I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. I am very grateful for verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So that we see the awfulness of sin, and we see a verse of grace. Now, just think for a moment what that verse means. We'll get to it in a minute. If there hadn't been a verse 8 then what would there have been? It was all going to be wiped out. And that would have meant that chapter 3, verse 15 wouldn't have come true. You remember that verse? And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Who's that verse talking about? Excuse me. Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. So... There's a lot of implications to this, these six, these six verses. So, to sober, verse one through eight, a sobering passage of scripture. The pre-flood culture had made a headlong plunge into depravity. So let's talk about, or think about for a moment, verses one through four, and think about the human degeneration that we see in these verses. 
uh, verses 1 through 4 record the degeneration of the primeval, primeval culture, the pre-flood culture. And there are three things that we see. I think I tossed these out there last week and left them floating around. So we're going to pick them up today. Three things that we see in verses 1 through 4. Number one, we see that marriage is demonized. Number two, life is shortened. And number three, violence is idolized. Now, if that sounds a little like today, you're probably right on. So let's think about it. At first glance, and by the way, this um, this passage does have several different interpretations. So call, you can call it a controversial passage, and that would probably be an accurate statement. So I'm going to tell you what I believe, and then you can decide for yourself what you want to believe, but I'm going to share with you what I think the text is telling us. So at first glance, and taking into account the context of chapters 4 and 5, it seems to indicate that the godly sons of the Sethite line, remember the the lineage of Seth we looked at last week in chapter 5, that the, that the godly sons of Seth, his lineage, marry the ungodly daughters of the Canaanite lineage, back to chapter 4, and that hastens the, de- the degeneration of the line of Seth. Now, that is what some look at the text and say, yeah, that's what it means. Uh, but I want us to, to remember... There is a New Testament, and the New Testament often enlightens us on things from the Old Testament, and so that's exactly what I think happens here. So I want to take you to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, You can listen or you can look it up. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. At least jot them down and read them later. 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20. And it says, After being made alive, Christ... He went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Now, the word in verse 19, spirits, pneumata, P-N-E-U-M-A-T-A. Numa, the P is silent. Numata. That word spirit is used in the Bible only to describe supernatural beings. And here he is addressing, I believe, the fallen angels of Genesis chapter 6. More, turn the page to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And verse 9, and here's what Peter wrote, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be hell for judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world when He brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if this is so, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. So that text 
in Second Peter references the same fallen angels that we just talked about in the context of the flood as Peter is warning that God will hold the unrighteous for judgment. Remember, sometimes we look at the world and we see awfulness and we see people who are sinful and unrighteous and they seem to get away with everything. No, no, no. Just for the moment. Just for the moment. Jude 6. One more reference to the New Testament. Jude 6. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling... These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Now, that references the same angels. Also, the oldest New Testament, Old Testament interpretations in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Dead Sea Scrolls, our friend Josephus, uh, Philo, all interpret the text to mean fallen angels and the New Testament fathers, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen, all interpret it the same way that it's talking about fallen angels who came and had children with the daughters of man. Now, you may be thinking something sounds wrong with that, and it should. Um, the normal Old Testament meaning of the term sons of God found frequently in Job refers to angels. It's the common use of the word sons of God, refers to angels. So the sons of God referred to in Genesis 6 are fallen angels, but we remember from Luke chapter 20 that Jesus says angels cannot marry or procreate. So, what do we do with that? So, these fallen angels, like demons, possess the souls of men and marry the daughters of other men. And these angelic lowlifes are now, according to Peter and according to Jude, kept in dungeons for the ultimate judgment. So, you wrapping your mind around that? Okay, now don't miss this detail because we're looking here at the degeneration of man. So don't miss this detail. I did until I researched it a little more. The Hebrew wording in Genesis chapter 6 indicates that the marriages it talks about there are legitimate, proper marriages of the day, which meant, here's the implication, which meant that the bride's fathers were complicit in the marriage of their daughters to these demonized angels. So what does that say about the degeneration of man? Do you ever read Genesis chapter 6 and say, boy... That's a pretty harsh description of the way things were. Yes, it is, because it was, just as we're reading it. 
So we're seeing a degradation of marriage. Demonic powers are seemingly in the driver's seat. Now, does that explain a bit why God said, I'm so sorry that I created them? Do you see the degeneration that had come? As a result, the second thing that we see in the text is that life is shortened. In verse 3, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. What had been the life span? We were reading that the last two weeks. We were reading numbers like 700, 800, 600, 900. Well, now it changes. It's going to change more, but it changes to 120 years, the norm. Joseph lived to be 110, Moses 120, Joshua 110, Aaron 123. Mortality shrank as a result of the degeneration and the sin of man. The third thing that we see in the text is that violence is idolized. Now, look at verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days... And also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. So we think, heroes, oh, that must be, that must be a positive term. No, it's not. It's like what we often see today in that violence is idolized. What sells? Violence. What do people go and look at at the theater and on television? Violence. Who are the superheroes? Men of violence. And so that is exactly what Moses is telling us here as he records these events in in chapter 6. The Nephilim, that word means fallen ones. That's Hebrew meaning is fallen ones. So these are the offspring of the demonized marriages. And the Nephilim are also mentioned in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, as being what? You remember? Giants. Giants. A result of the demonized breeding were giants, the Nephilim. Mighty men of violence, men of renown, sexual violence, perversion, all kinds of things. Moses paints a grim picture of this demonized civilization. Maybe this helps us understand a bit more why God said, I'm going to wipe out the whole thing. Because in our humanness and in our sponginess of mind that I sometimes have, we think, oh my goodness, God, you did all that work and, and all that wonder, all those wonderful things, and you're just going to wipe them out? Oh, well, I read chapter six, and I'm saying, ah, well, yeah, I understand why you want to wipe them out. The degeneration is is horrific, and is it hard to believe? Shouldn't be. We don't have to think back very far. For instance, the Holocaust or 
the gulags of the Soviet Union or the killing fields of Pol Pot in Cambodia. You don't have to think back very far at all. And, and so here is the picture we get, and God is saying, I'm, I'm going to wipe it all out. Think about what you can watch because it's available, but I hope you don't watch on television and at the theater. Violence, physical violence, sexual violence, sexual jokes. Not very hard to imagine Genesis 6 at all. Not hard to imagine it at all. And so we find God saying, human depravity is awful. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Get your mind, get your minds around. I can't wait to get to verse 8 and a little grace here, but look at verse 5. Look at what he says. How great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the, not, it doesn't say in most of their inclination, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. I don't think you can get much more declarative than that. Every inclination, evil, only evil all the time. And so human depravity was awful. And this is not a temporary depravity, but a no relenting, no repentance, lustful, violent society. So there's about to be divine judgment. And we see in verses 6 and 7, God is grieved and his heart is filled with pain. And God has a plan. And it's a terrible resolution. He has terrible resolution. And I want you to think about the implication of this. Well, we already touched on it. If he wipes out the whole planet then the prophecy of chapter 3, verse 15 doesn't come true. So if you just stopped right there and pondered it for a few moments, you pretend you don't know the rest of the story. You don't know what's going to happen. You just stop right there and think, oh, my goodness. But wait a minute. God promised back in chapter 3, and now he's going to wipe everybody out. What's going to happen? Well, we're blessed to know the rest of the story. And the divine grace emerges in verse 8, but Noah, I like those conjunctions, but, that turns everything, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Here's God's grace. Oh, I know you were listening last week because we talked about the only other character in the Bible of whom it says he walked with God other than Noah. Who was it? Enoch. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. Our only hope is in God's grace. And we know that, don't we? Uh, Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have not a whit of a chance. Romans chapter 3, as a reminder. For we have already 
made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are all alike under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have all together become worthless. There is not one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So much for the feel-good portion of the Scripture, huh? That's, that's a vivid description of the depravity of man. Well, I don't have a chance. And neither do you. But God. But God demonstrated His love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. I am so thankful for those words. Now, is all of this in Genesis 6 relevant for today? You bet it is. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 37. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So, definitely relevant to the day in which we live. Now, let's let's look at verses uh, 9 through 12. Um, We're talking about the flood now. There, There is wickedness on the earth, but the focus of the story of the flood is not judgment. The flood, as horrible as it was, the focus is on Noah, a righteous man who was saved out of a lost world So let's talk about Noah for a moment, and let's read verses 9 through 12. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Man, I tell you what, that is such a better picture than what we were reading a minute ago. Aren't you grateful? Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. We'll stop there for a minute. Righteous Noah. Noah walked with God. Only said of Enoch, other than Noah. Noah was righteous, not because he was perfect, but because he believed God. He was righteous because he believed God. Like Abram or Abraham in a few chapters, where it says in the 15th chapter in the 6th verse, Abram believed the Lord and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. 
Okay. Noah believed by faith. Hebrews 11.7. The Faith Hall of Fame. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Now, I don't want to get off too far in the uh, too far field here, but you know that the righteousness of God is imputed to us because of Christ, and we see that first imputed righteousness here in the life of of Noah, because he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, verse nine is the first mention of righteousness in the Scripture. And there'll be many more instances of righteousness to follow. Verse 9 says he's blameless. That describes his moral conduct. Not that he's sinless, but that his conduct, his moral conduct is blameless. The demonized culture did not divert or pervert Noah. He was the lone bright spot in a darkened world. Can you imagine the temptations that he faced? to succumb to the culture. And he didn't do it. Imagine for a moment, and we'll get to the building of the ark momentarily, Noah's building this immense ark. How long did it take him to build it? Do you remember? 100 years. 100 years. And the scripture tells us in Second uh, Peter, I think it is, we'll, I'll look it up in a minute, that during that time, Noah preached. Now, the Old Testament, Genesis doesn't tell us that Noah preached, but the New Testament tells us Noah preached. One hundred years, he's building the ark, and he's preaching to his neighbors as they no doubt mocked him, called him a lunatic, you are out of your mind, what in the world are you doing? And then when they realized that he was building this ark for his family, then they really got mad. Can you imagine the pressure that was brought to bear on Noah to succumb to the culture? We face pressure. I'm not building an ark, neither are you. But if we're distinctive, as we're called to be, then we face that pressure from the culture for us to compromise, change, submit, or be quiet. So Noah faced that 100 years. Oh, my goodness. Sinful man. The world is corrupt and full of violence. It's a bloody culture in the grip of the demonic. And so it's 2 Peter 2.5. That's, that's the verse. 2 Peter 2.5 tells us Noah preached righteousness. Genesis doesn't tell us that, but the New Testament does. The kind of preaching that's not going to go over well in the world of that day. But God protected him. 
God did not let anything happen to Noah. So when we come to verse 13, we find the ark of salvation. So let's read. We've got just a couple of more minutes, and then we'll have to pick up there next time. So verse 13. Um, verse, excuse me. Did I, how far did I read last time? Through verse 9? Through 12. Okay, so verse 13. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof and opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of every, of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, of every cr- kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you. Did you catch that? Will come to you to be kept alive. So if your picture is that Noah had to go out and wrestle a tiger to the ground to drag him into the, into the ark. That's the wrong picture. Willingly they submitted and came to Noah. You were to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. Now here's the clincher. Look at verse 22. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Wow. Think about it. Build an ark, get animals, get food. It'll take me forever to build this ark. It's 450 feet long. I know we've got ships today bigger than that, but they didn't in those days. 450, that's, is that, that's one and a half football fields. One and a half football fields. No, no modern tools. I mean, he couldn't pull out a, a power saw. He didn't have a table saw. No wonder it took him a hundred years. He had to cut the trees, get the wood ready, and you know, some of you are builders. You're probably thinking, "Wow, we're taking me 120 years." But uh, all this in his mind, and what did Noah do? Everything, just as God commanded him. I love Noah. Amazing. So God frames the specifics of the ark between the declarations of judgment in verse 13 and 17. It's incredible in size, 450 feet long, one and a half football fields, shaped like a shallow box topped with a roof. And it took him a century to build it with no modern tools. He had to cut the trees and shape them into an ark just as God gave him instruction to do. Now, I'm going to close with this. 
the only thing Noah had to sustain him for 100 years was the Word of God. God's promise. In the face of ridicule, in the face of hostility, the promise of God's Word was his sustenance, and I would submit to you the promise of God's Word is the sustenance of God's people today. And Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Okay, that's where we start next Wednesday. So I hope I'll see you back here same time, same place. Okay? Father, you are so good to us. Utterly am I amazed at what we read of the righteousness of Noah and his total obedience to you, his total dependence upon your word in the face of incredible odds. And I pray that today, as your people, we would obey everything you tell us to do and that we would find your word that which sustains us. So bless us now as we go from this place. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. God bless you. See you next time.